Thanks for downloading this University College Dublin Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Law and the Idea of Liberty in Ireland, from Magna Carta to the Present. This Irish Legal History Society conference took place in Christchurch Cathedral in November 2016. The event was organised to mark the 800th anniversary of the transmission of Magna Carta to Ireland. This episode features a paper by Jimmy Kelly from Dublin City University. His paper was entitled Era of Liberty, The Politics of Political Rights in 18th Century Ireland. The lecture was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. I begin by just by making a quick reference to the quotation at, that uh, is on the title of the paper, which is on the, on the screen behind you, or behind me, Era of Liberty. Uh, the phrase is from a speech, or at least the draft notes of a speech, uh, prepared by Henry Flood in the, in the 1760s, and I think it's a statement of, it's a wistful statement rather than an expression of reality. Though I think there is no question about the reality, which is that the concepts and aspiration to liberty uh, was central to public and political discourse amongst the political nation, which was seemed to be reserved to Irish Protestantism in the 18th century. Now, this is attributable to their perception and to the perception of the political nation of which they were a part, that they were entitled for ethnic, historical and religious reasons to the rights and liberties enjoyed by, by Englishmen. Indicatively, they legitimated their claim by reference to rights granted by the Crown to the first generation of English settlers in Ireland, a point, of course, influentially advocated by William Molyneux, and identified themselves during the late 17th and early 18th centuries as, quote, of English blood born in Ireland. They did, to be sure, assume a more identifiably Irish identity in the 18th century, but this did not diminish their conviction that as subjects of the same Protestant royal house, they were entitled to enjoy the same liberties, or in order to diminish the esteem in which they held the English constitution realised by the Glorious Revolution. And I think the Glorious Revolution, rather than the Magna Carta, dominates their horizon in that context. The aspiration, in any event, is well encapsulated in the observation of Charles Lucas, when at the height of his campaign to challenge the oligarchical control exercised by the Board of Aldermen on Dublin Corporation, he asserted, and I quote, that liberty is the birthright, just a quotation, of every son of Adam, a quotation which can be misinterpreted, and hence the reason I included the, uh, the, the later uh, clause, because, quite, frank, quite frankly, he didn't mean that it was a contemporary entitlement to every son of Adam, uh, though it has been uh, so asserted, I believe. The main problem they encountered in any event in realising this aspiration was that the English first, and then British government, and British governing elite instinctively conceived of Ireland in colonial terms and was dis- disinclined as a consequence to acknowledge the Irish Parliament's legislative autonomy or entitlement thereto, or to extend to Irish Protestants the same liberties Protestants enjoyed in England or from uh, 1707 Great Britain. They were actively support- supported in this stance by those of the Anglo-Irish, as we may call them, who, pr- who participated actively in the government of Ireland and more conditionally by the generality of the Protestant nation who were guided by the demographic reality of their minority status in Ireland and by the compelling memory of history, represented most vividly by the memory they constructed of 1641, and by political calculation 
to accede to a reality in which they functioned in practice with the lesser suite of liberties than they conceived was their entitlement. The fact that they had no hesitation in confirming the political, economic and religious liberties of the majority Catholic population, and to to a degree those of their Protestant co-religionists, the various dissenting communions, doubtlessly facilitated their acquiescence in this situation. This does not mean that their evocation or assertion of their perceived entitlement to liberty was ever merely rhetorical. It was too ubiquitous and sincerely felt and articulated for this to be the case. But it does explain why they acceded to political dependency and economic subordination for most of the 18th century, and why, when they had the opportunity in the late 1770s and early 1780s, they did not seek to emulate the American colonists whose situation bore comparison with their own, and to pursue other than the legislative independence as distinct from political independence. It also explains why, when a new, more expansive concept of liberty emerged, which is the French Revolution, it revealed the limits of the tradition of Protestant liberty that was dominant in the 18th century, and encouraged many amongst the Protestant elite who were unwilling to contemplate expanding its parameters then to embrace an ideologically conservative political outlook whose rhetoric in contrast to the rhetoric which preceded, was about confining, in practice anyhow, not extending uh, liberty. Now, there are three what might be described as defining moments in the history of the debate and application of liberty in the long 18th century in Ireland. When I say long, I mean 1690s, really, up to the active union. The first, which tellingly took place in the wake of the Glorious Revolution, witnessed the extension to the Irish Protestant ruling elite of a limited, though undeniably consequential, menu of mainly political liberties that had afforded them a direct and really quite impressive say in the government and administration of Ireland. Certainly one that was more uh, direct and impressive than was possible before 1688. The second phase, which is coeval with the high point of political patriotism, which can be said to span the mid-1750s to the mid-1780s, witnessed a sustained effort to realise those liberties, identified with the Glorious Revolution, that is, that they had not been extended to them uh, earlier. And the third, which dates to the 1790s, exposed the limits of this traditional concept of liberty as radicalised elements of the Protestant nation, mainly of the middling sort, which were largely excluded from the existing political process and embraced within it an invigorated Catholic interest, aspired by the example of revolutionary France, pressed a vision of liberté that was more egalitarian and more expansive than that which had emerged out of the crucible of religious and political discourse in in the 17th century or at the end of the 17th century. Now, it is not possible in the time available to engage adequately with each of these phases, I propose, therefore, to focus primarily on the first two and have briefly sketched the accommodation of the claims advanced in the 1690s and early 18th centuries to comment briefly on the extent to which these common, with which those commonly denominated patriots sought in the second half of the century to realise their perception of the vision of 1688. So, part one, basically roughly entitled Establishing Protestant Liberties, which looks at sort of the half century 1690. To 17, 1740, well, it doesn't really embrace up to, the, up to 1740, but in 1690 onwards. As naturally the offspring of the people of England, which was a term utilised by Henry Maxwell, a pamphleteer and tract writer in the early uh, 18th century, Irish Protestants maintained that they possessed an entitlement to the same rights and, and liberties. The manner in which they contrived in the 1690s first to assert 
quote, the sole right, end of quote, of the House of Commons to initiate financial legislation. Second, the development of the Heads of Bill procedure, uh, whereby they were able to affirm the precedence of Parliament over the Privy Council when it came to initiating legislation at large. And thirdly, commencing in 1695, they were able to embark on, appro- on approving a body of legislation that contrives successfully in the name of securing Protestant liberties to delimit and confine the liberties of Catholics and, dis- and dissenters, asserted to their ability to use this formative moment to put their distinct imprint on, on matters. Nor was this all. The effect and implication of the landmark compromise forged in 1695 with the then Lord Deputy Henry uh, Earl Capel assured them of a direct put into the management of Parliament as well as the administration of the Kingdom. Yet consequential as these achievements were, and they really were quite significant, there was no including the fact that their liberties were inferior to those of their English peers, and this reality was brought home really quite starkly in 1698 when the Westminster legislature approved a Woolen Act that underlined the economic and political subordination of the Kingdom of Ireland. Persuaded in the words of Bishop William King, quote, that their liberties and privileges were being invaded, the rub of the matter was whether the people of Ireland, this is King's words again, be enslaved or free men, and whether they be more the subjects of England than the people of England are the King's subjects. Nearly two decades later, King, now Archbishop of Dublin, was still more explicit. Any attempt to bind our liberty, property or conscience by laws where we have no representatives and where the dependence of Ireland is not concerned, I take to be against the constitution or fundamental maxims of our nations. The problem for King and others who endorsed this point of view, was that it collided with political sentiment in England, which, as expressed by the House of Commons in June 1698, was, and I quote, to preserve and maintain the dependence and subordination of Ireland to the imperial crown of this realm. Now, these words, I'm sure you know, were issued in response to the similar articulation of the sentiments to which King gave voice. William Molyneux's case of Ireland's being bound by Acts of Parliament in English in England stated. As the urtext of Irish Protestant patriotism, Molyneux's sentiment was understandably valorised then in Ireland and later. But it was less significant at the moment of its publication, that this is valorisation, was less significant at the moment of its publication than the conclusion of MPs at Westminster that was, and I quote, of dangerous consequence to the Crown and people of England by denying the authority and Parliament of England to bind the Kingdom and people of Ireland and the subordination and dependence that Ireland hath and ought to have upon England, because this was a more correct encapsulation of political reality. The reality then, and in the early 18th century, of the calls that Ireland might, like Scotland, be embraced by a legislative union, sorry, the rejection then, and in the early 18th century, of the calls that Ireland might, like Scotland, be embraced by a legislative union, underline that dependent status as much as the repeated refusal in the 1690s and early 18th century to approve a measure for the better securing the liberty of the subject, which have extended the entitlement to habeas corpus. Bills to that effect were pursued repeatedly in the 1690s and early years of the, of the century. The additional denial of the protection afforded to Englishmen for military tyranny by the denial in 1696 to agree an annual mutiny bill 
and in 1701 to extend the English Act of Settlement, which formally deprived Irish Protestants of a number of important provisions aimed at countering royal influence, for example, the stipulation that judges' commissions were on good behaviour rather than by the will of the Crown, and that certain office and pension holders were precluded from sitting in Parliament, were further demonstrations of the practical meaning of this subordination. Now, some Irish Protestants were understandably troubled by the failure to extend to them the rights available to their co-subjects in England, but the expressions of disquiet these matters generated were of lesser consequence than the larger constitutional liberties that were subjected to further curtailment in law as well as in practice. Most notably, in 1720, the Westminster Legislature approved a declaratory act, famously the 6th of George I, which explicitly denied the claim of the Irish Parliament that it was the body solely required to make, entitled to make law for Ireland, by affirming the right of the Westminster Legislature to do likewise, and by determining that the dispute over an ongoing dispute over whether the Irish or British House of Lords was the final court of appeal was determined in favour of uh, the, the latter. Now, if this series of events over several decades supports the conclusion that the efforts of Irish Protestants to secure the constitutional individual liberties that were identified with the Glorious Revolution, but which William Molyneux famously contended were part of, quote, the laws and liberties of England granted above 500 years ago to the people of Ireland upon their submission to the Crown of England, and therefore as venerable as Magna Carta, that it had failed spectacularly, the reality was not quite so disagreeable. It is noteworthy, for example, that Westminster used the power it had arrogated by the Declaratory Act to make law for Ireland sparingly, and rarely, and rarely with a seriously restrictive intent. More importantly, insofar as the exercise of power in Ireland is concerned, the disinclination from 1701 of the King's representative, the Lord Lieutenant, to reside in Ireland for the duration of his appointment meant that much of the practical day-to-day -day business of administering the Kingdom and managing Parliament was assumed by the leaders of the Irish Protestant political nation. Furthermore, the restrictions flowing from Poyning's law did not reduce the Irish Parliament to a cipher. Indeed, following on the and the establishment of a pattern during Queen Anne's reign of the practice whereby the Irish Parliament met every two years, the legislature became an increasingly important vector of Irish Protestant ambition during the early Hanoverian era. This trend is well illustrated by reference to the amount of law Parliament made, which rose from, seven, from 84 enactments during the reign of William and Mary to 131 during the reign of George I, and was to continue to increase thereafter but is still more clearly demonstrated by the increased percentage of measures that originated as heads of bills in the House of Commons, and by the parallel fall from 19% during the reign of Queen Anne to 8% during the reign of George I in the percentage of legislation that took rise in the Irish Privy Council, permitted, of course, under Poynings Law. Moreover, this trend intensified following the House of Commons' rejection famous rejection of a bill to combat riot in 1730, simply because it rose at the Council. As a result, the percentage of Privy Council bills to reach the statute book contracted to a modest 2.6% during the reign of George II. And by the end of this reign, 1760, the Privy Council's lawmaking function was more symbolic than real, being, mainly, uh, being maintained solely to uphold the royal prerogative and to preclude Parliament convening without prior authorisation. This picture of an increasingly vibrant Irish legislature, and House of Commons in particular, must be qualified by the fact that 19% of Irish bills received by the British Privy, 
British Council board during the reign of Queen Anne, 14% during the reign of George I, were respited or never returned, and that nearly three quarters of public bills were returned in an amended form. Not severely amended, but amended nonetheless. But it is notable that once the Kingdom had negotiated the crisis over the Declaratory Act in 1719 the proposal to establish a Bank of Ireland in 1720 Woods Haitlands in 1724-25, that public and political opinion seemed broadly reconciled to this reality and content in the main to work within these parameters. This did not mean that there were no dissentients. Charles Lucas's defiance of the municipal and national establishments in the 1740s drew heavily on a traditional rhetoric of liberty and on an intellectual as well as visceral indebtedness to a vision of English liberties informed by a perception of Magna Carta and still more so by the Glorious Revolution. But the fact that he failed to secure his way in the capital and that he fled the country rather than risk imprisonment when Parliament turned its hostile gaze in his direction was indicative of a broader disinclination to agitate sensitive matters that coincided with the high point of the undertaker system. It also encouraged a complacent tendency to lionise rather than to critique the existing system that its many admirers found irresistible and that resulted in effusions such such as that articulated by Jasper Brett, a Church of Ireland clergyman, Writing in 1721, he observed a quotation. "'Tis indeed the greatest happiness of a people to live under a government where the prerogative of the prince and the liberties of the people are duly tempered. And pointing to the fact that the people of these nations have the comfort to live under the most mild and just government that ever was known to mankind, he exulted openly in the fact that it was, I quote, "'a government in short which all the subjects of Europe envy and none but a wanton people would find fault with.'" Now, the contentment to which commentaries like that penned by Brecht bear witness provide a useful insight as to why politicians in Ireland were satisfied to strive to push the frontiers of opportunity within the existing political system rather than press for new and exclusive liberties during the early Hanoverian era. This did not survive the 1750s, however, as the combination of an explosion in the, in the, in the public sphere, concomitant growth in civil society, the beginnings of a new form of popular politicisation, and disgruntlement with the elitist factionalism and exclusivity of the system of parliamentary government resulted in the emergence of a numerically small but vocal strand of political patriotism. Its principles, people like Edmund Perry and Henry Flood and Charles Lucas, possessed different personal as well as political priorities, but the impulse was bound by the common conviction that those in power, which in the Irish context meant the undertakers, the rest of the Lord Lieutenancy, had compromised the integrity of the Constitution. This conviction had a direct and visible influence on political discourse from the 1750s onwards, manifested initially in the willingness of a small nucleus of patriots to agitate issues such as Poynings Law and to target issues such as the pension list as a manifestation of corruption. The impact of this ginger group increased subsequently by the addition of new energetic voices such as Flood and Lucas back from exile. The latter was particularly critical of Poynings' law. He was, he maintained, responsible for the prevailing corrupt system and fundamentally at odds with the spirit of, quote, the ancient constitution because its implementation was left to the arbitrary determination of one or two servants of the crown. Henry Flood was even more passionate. That's possible. Speaking in the House of Commons in October 1765, he compared the situation in Ireland to that of the American colonies and embracing the rhetoric of those British Whigs who concluded that George III was embarked on a campaign to undermine the liberties secured by the Glorious Revolution and to revert to the despotism of the discredited Stuarts, he alleged that the Irish administration likewise inspired to, quote, to rob and enslave. 
Flood cited the disproportionate response to agrarian violence in support of his provocative contention that we have, quote, relinquished the civil power, abandoned magistracy, and thrown ourselves into the arms of the military. This rhetorical outburst seriously misrepresented the motives of both the Crown and the Irish administration, but Flood and other patriots had drunk so deeply of Whig rhetoric that they were convinced that ministers actively aspire to overturn, quote, the finest, the fullest, the most ancient, the best attested national compact which any nation has to boast of as the ground of its constitution. And this extract from his draft speech, I think I won't read it, it provides a perspective on on his thinking and his readiness to reach back into the Middle Ages in in justification of his position. Now, the vision of Irish history embraced therein is as problematic a reading of Irish history as it was an unjustifiable assessment, as we now are fairly confident, of the motives of George III and his ministers. But the image of the decay of liberty was as compelling to Irish patriots as it was to British Whigs and American colonists. Their shared priority was to restore the ancient constitution, or at least rhetorical, at least. And to do this end, they repeatedly invoked the, the, the rising civil establishment list as fundamentally inconsistent with political liberty and urged greater financial probity and responsibility in all areas of expenditure. They also supported the creation of a civil, civilian militia uh, to diminish the needs for a large standing army and advocated the reduction in the duration of Parliament to seven years. This was largely, they were largely unsuccessful in effecting change, though the duration of Parliament was reduced to eight years, but really at the behest of the administration. But as in England and the American colonies, the attraction of patriot and reformist rhetoric increased in the late 1760s and early 1770s in response to what was seen as the intensifying threat to political liberty. In the case of Ireland, events coalesced to sustain this impression. The most visible and compelling was the, not just the, the appointment of George Lord Townsend to head the Irish executive in, in 1767, but his conduct as Lord Lieutenant. Now, Townsend did not come to Ireland with a blueprint for reform, but his unwillingness to submit to the dictates of the undertakers and his brusque, military-inspired manner convinced many that he posed the same threat to fundamental liberties that the supporters of John Wilkes in England and the American colonists attributed to the king and his ministers. They offered little compelling evidence to justify their conclusion, but it had a palpably radicalising impact in political debate. Its impact was clearly evident in the House of Commons in 1771, when one speaker alleged in response to the introduction at the British Privy Council of amendments in the Domain Supply Bill, and I quote, that no less than the, rights, the, le- no, that no less than the right of Parliament, the constitution of this kingdom was at stake. For if we consented to the altering of money bill, there was an end to, of Parliament. It was still more visible out of doors in the early 1770s when, in the absence of leadership from those who had given direction to patriotism in the 1760s, a number of popular voices, most of whom used the public sphere to a special effect, developed a vision of a reform legislature in which representatives functioned as tribunes of the people, a vision that proved seductively compelling for an increasingly politically conscious middling sort for whom Parliament was a disagreeably remote institution. One of the most insistent and interesting of those voices was Edward Newenham, a keen supporter of Wilkes and the American colonists, whose wordy commentaries proffered an idealised vision of a balanced Protestant constitution in which the liberties of the people were represented and advanced by responsive MPs. 
As a representative of the freeholders of, freeholders of County Dublin from 1776, Newenham demonstrated how an MP could engage with and reflect the interests of the electorate on national as well as local issues. But if his model of active representation impressed reform-minded activists of the virtues of the ancient constitution, of the enduring value of the liberties enshrined in the Protestant constitution secured in 1688 as opposed to 95 in Ireland, and of the potential of a reformed electoral representative system, and seemed to demonstrate how endangered liberties could be restored, few representatives were tempted to follow his example. Matters might have continued thus, essentially unchanged, but for the war of an American independence, since this seismic event provided the generality of Irish Protestants with an inspiring example they might seek to follow to secure increased access to the constitutional, commercial, and so others hoped the political liberties they believed their birthright, which of course was Lucas's term. They were certainly emboldened to press for change by the magnitude of the problems Britain experienced as a consequence of the war, and by the weak leadership provided in England by Lord Maud, the Prime Minister, and in Ireland by the Lord Lieutenant, the Earl of Buckinghamshire. The failure of the Irish administration to assert control over their volunteers was a profound error of judgment. As the epitome of the big ideal of the citizen soldier, the volunteers concentrated at the outset in the non-engaged at the outset in the non-controversial business of maintaining law and order. But when Parliament at uh, Westminster dashed public expectations in 1778 in respect of uh, trade, they were quickly and rapidly politicised. Employing tactics such as non-importation agreements borrowed from the American colonists, they vigorously pursued the reform of the various economic, constitutional and legal restrictions that had long confined the liberties of the Kingdom of Ireland. Inevitably, there were those within the Protestant political nation who, in the tradition of their forebears, who had acquiesced in withholding the liberties secured in, in, in 1688, and the tradition of liberty that traced back to the 13th century, who contended this was, and I quote, a most dangerous and improper time to excite dissension or dis- discontent between the two countries. But the caution that had long convinced a majority of Irish Protestants not to agitate sensitive political issues was overcome, and the government was compelled to yield. The concession in 1780 of what was colloquially determined free trade empowered Irish merchants to trade in the same terms as their English equivalents, both within and without the empire in the main. The still more significant concession of legislative independence, so-called in 1782, ensured the removal of the restrictions that had long corralled the kingdom's legislative authority. Specifically, they brought about the appeal of the Declaratory Act, which restored the appellate jurisdiction of the House of Lords and precluded Westminster legislation for Ireland, and the amendment of Poyning's Law as a result of which the Irish Privy Council was ensured of the entitlement to initiate, amend and to veto, and the British Council of the right to amend and to veto legislation, it effectively encapsulated the key elements of the 1782 Constitution. In addition, though, an annual mutiny act, the Habeas Corpus Act, and the alteration of the terms in which judges held their commissions meant that Irish Protestants finally possessed virtually the same rights and liberties as free-born Englishmen, and thus heralded and trumpeted this fact. They did not secure an exact Bill of Rights along the lines of the ratified at Westminster in 1689, but the Kingdom of Ireland now possessed to all intents and purposes what Henry Flood in 1782 maintained was his entitlement, quote, a similar constitution with England. Because these landmark constitutional and commercial reforms coincided with the unprecedented degree of freedom of expression permitted by the relaxation of state censorship that had taken place since the 1750s, the liberties possessed by the Irish, by Irish Protestant subjects in Ireland were greater in the autumn of 1782 than they had been at any point in their history. 
The fact that the legislature deemed it appropriate at this moment to ease considerably the restrictions under which Catholics had lived, and which encompasses a sense of an exclusionary liberty world in which they operated up to this, uh, was also of significance. Not least because, for a brief moment in the 1780s, Ireland surpassed England in its willingness to accommodate Catholic aspirations. However, the circumstances that encouraged this liberality and attitude were not to endure. 18th century Ireland remained irrevocably fractured along denominational lines, and though there were some amongst the Protestant elite who believed in the possibility of forging what Henry Grattan in 1782 termed an Irish nation that transcended confessional allegiance, they were a minority. Indeed, they were unable other than momentarily to transcend the fundamental sectarian division that shaped Irish society. For, for when the volunteers who had spearheaded the campaign for the reform of the commercial and constitutional relationship with Great Britain took up the issue of broadening the base of the electoral and representative system to extend political liberty to embrace politicised ranks of the middling sort in 1783-84, the inherent sectarianism and indeed a hierarchical nature of the Irish ruling elite was soon in evidence. They had made their resistance or disinclination to embrace Catholic relief evident in the Catholic relief that embraced Catholic participation in the political process evident in 1782 and in 1788. It basically was the issue upon which parliamentary reform uh, broke in 1783 and 1784. Now the differences on this mirrored the deeply held conviction not only that the admission of Catholics to the Constitution would compromise its Protestant character, but also to do so, or that to do so was inherently dangerous because Catholic doctrine was antipathetic to and intrinsically incompatible with the liberties that were provided for by the Protestant Constitution. The prospect of a purely Protestant, for, ref, Protestant reform, which had preserved the Protestant constitution intact, exerted a broader appeal, but it was insufficient to prevail as the combination of the unwillingness of the traditional elite to accede to any dilution of their ascendancy within the political nation, and the apprehension of the guardians, guardians of the Anglo-Irish nexus that any change to the parliamentary system must endanger the long-term security of the Anglo-Irish connection. As a result, attempts in the mid-1780s to complement the reform of the Anglo-Irish connection with the eternal reform of the political system was stillborn. The defeat of reform signalled the end of the liberal moment spanning the late 1770s and early 1780s when reform was pursued across the commercial, constitutional, parliamentary, political, religious and economic spheres. The failure to achieve parliamentary reform and even seriously to contemplate a programme of governmental reform that embraced the nature of the relationship between the executive and parliament ensured that the so-called constitution of 82 not only did not constitute a revolution, but also amounted to a whole lot less than its passionate advocates conceived at the time and that its more enthusiastic proponents maintained in the 19th century. In truth, this was apparent well before the representatives of the Protestant nation voted by a significant majority for the abolition of the Irish Parliament in 1800. The enduring conditionality manifest in the 1690s with which liberties were extended can be invoked to account for the failure of parliamentary reform in 1783-85. This conditionality was further manifest a few years later when, in response to the surge in agrarian discontent aimed at inhibiting the payment of the Catholic population, of tithes to the clergy of the Church of Ireland emerged an ideology of Protestant ascendancy fostered and which in turn was fostering the reanimation of more traditional sectarian politics. Given the inherently confessional way in which the idea of an entitlement to liberty was long conceived of at this point, even these events did little to blunt the perception of those Protestants who traditionally equated Protestantism and liberty. 
This is not a position that could easily sustain after 1789, for once the ideal of the French Revolution, or the ideals of the French Revolution were in circulation, and the equation of liberté with equalité was taken on board, the French vision of liberté or liberty had a far greater resonance and appeal than the familiar concept of English liberty, which looked backwards to the glorious revolution. This had major implications for the language of liberty as it was historically employed. For though some chose doggedly to maintain a traditional equation of Protestantism and liberty, it was possessed of diminishing authority. Indicatively, the liberal Dublin newspaper, the Hibernian Journal, maintained in 1792 that it was, quote, passing strange that those in Britain and Ireland who had long boasted of their own free constitution should in 1792 seek actively to discredit those who advocated reform by blackening the French Revolution though it sought only to promote, quote, the cause of liberty and to effect the probable emancipation of millions. The authors of these comments would have been still more bemused eight years later when the representatives of Irish Protestantism improved the act of union because they do, by so doing, they not only demonstrated that when required to choose between a society in which political and civil liberty would be available to all, which in practice at this stage, stage meant admitting Catholics to power, or confining excess to liberty to Protestants, they opted for the latter. In so doing, they demonstrated their continuing attachment to a position their forebearers had taken at the end of the 17th century, and the strength of their conviction that the principles of liberty enshrined in the glorious revolution were such that only Protestants were equipped to enjoy. Thank you for your tolerance.